But the follow-up, nobody ever questions, nobody ever questions it going down through until 10 years later when some of the the re-interviews come out and they say, well, the, the body wasn't like that. It's, it's not how it was in the picture. The initial crime scene should have at least reviewed, not to put an exact measurement of where Bill's head was and where Bill's foot was and such like that. They have nothing. They didn't do any follow-up on, on any of that. Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 27, Did Bill Little Fight Back? Q&A. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. If you enjoy Snow Files, please give us a quick rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This will help Jamie's story get out to the masses. Visit snowfiles.net and click on Rate Show. And while you're there, leave us a voicemail that may be used on the show and check out our cool Snow Files merch. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. Welcome to Snow Files, Episode 27, Did Bill Little Fight Back? Q&A. This week we have a special guest, Ray Wilson. Ray Wilson was a former chief of police in the New Jersey area. He has been working on the case. I don't know. I've been working on it for 11 years. I think you came in only two years after me, right? I'm guessing around (laughs) 10 years, nine years. Okay. So Ray is pretty much an expert on organizing this information and the police reports. He's been an amazing resource and knows these FOIA documents, these thousands of documents that we've gotten over and over very well. And he also has how many years, Ray, of investigative experience or experience in the police department? Well, I was an officer for 37 years. Okay. And he's really good at reading those reports from the perspective of a police officer. So it's wonderful that he's been able to catch a lot of the things that we don't really see. Thanks so much, Ray, for joining us. And we'll we'll be seeing Ray a lot during this season because he knows those reports so well. Tam, at the beginning of this episode, we play a phone recording. It's not easy to understand. What was said in that recording? The transcript of the recording is, oh, buddy, you sound like a fucking asshole. And I want to talk to Jenny because her boyfriend just died. Yeah, motherfucker. You know, what he's saying, it sounds like Jenny. So that's what he says. And the significance of it is that he sounds very bitter. He's pretty much kind of in this guy's face, like, ha, ha, ha. The history of the call was that it was a message that was a wrong number, and it was left on someone's answering machine. 
between 9.45 and 9.50, the night of the crime. Now that we know of, there were no other homicides that night in the area. We know from this episode and the police reports that there was a little bit of friction and girl problems with Bill. They had that fight at the house. That is very significant. And the guy that got that message brought it up on March 1st or 2nd. He brought it up to the police station the next day and was like, after he heard about the crime and the murder, and he was like, that was a big red flag. And he brought it straight to the police station and there was never a trace or a number. I'm not sure back in 91, couldn't they have looked at the guy's records, Ray, just phone records to see where that number came from or or did they, or do you know? I don't know if they did. I don't know if they even thought of getting his phone bill and seeing where the number came from. I think most of them would just say where the phone, where he called out. We don't have any information where the Bloomington police did anything other than take the little tape recording and keep it. So, Ray, one thing that comes up during that phone call and that came up in the podcast was about the bruises to Bill's arm. You were talking about this fight or somebody had a fight around him at that party and his girlfriend had also reported to other people that she treated him poorly. And I remember the bruises maybe in the Truth and Justice podcast being like described as old bruises on his arm as if there are five bruises, like somebody grabbed his arm with their finger. So I was wondering, did you come up with any information during your investigation about if those bruises were new or old? And do you think that it could have been from one of these conflicts, you know, involving his girlfriend in the days leading up to the crime? I think they, they very well could be. Like I said, they're, they were discolored, like, so they were old bruises. But... Um, we have a number of reports from different friends that a little uh, scuffles he got into over girlfriends, different fights, different people that some he owed money to. There's a number, a number of people that uh, he could have been scuffling around with, you know, for, for months. <laughs> Did we ever have any reports, though, that Bill actually scuffled with people? Because as far as I can just remember from my memory, it was always like his friends. But did anybody ever say that like he fought or he got into those physical altercations? We don't have anywhere Bill was charged with like an assault or a, like a disorderly conduct of fighting in the street or anything like that. It's just reports from friends saying that, you know, one one person was breaking up with a girl and he was breaking up. Uh, it goes all it goes all over the place. There's there's a number of them. Yeah, it's hard to um, tease out and decide what's significant and what's not, because, you know, it's a lot of teenage drama and it all seems so casual and tra- traditional that, I mean, when I'm hearing all of that stuff, it kind of just blows right over my head because. I mean, you can take any teenager's life, all the drama that's going on and, you know, analyze it to a T. And if they're involved in a murder, all of a sudden it becomes significant. But I think a lot of that is pretty normal, especially for the 90s. It is. And and remember, you know, he's 18 years old. So these are all uh, these are all kids, pretty much. And 
Bill was just out of high school. Friends, I assume, were all the same same kind of age, the ones he hang, hung around with. And they were all kids, and a, a lot of people go through that. But the reason that we brought it out was that because there was, like, the car, the damage to his car, which was, I think, in 89, that was earlier, but there was an element of violence in those scuffles. It wasn't like just talk and, and whatever. I mean, there was a lot of talk, but it is, you're right, Leslie, it's so hard to discern what's significant and what isn't. But when we couple that with the real trouble that he was involved in with the police reports, then, you know, you have to stop and think about that. And then also with that message that was left in it, it, you know, it could have been random, but it's really hard to believe that it was. And as far as the bruises on his arms, I mean, there's, there's no other notations about that. So there's no way for us to say the age of those bruises. You know, that's it. They just have that one note about it and that's it. We've not seen them. We've not seen pictures of them. We don't know. I mean, it takes an expert to analyze wounds. And apparently that wasn't done either that we know of. So those are just things that it's circumstantial evidence. But, you know, so was Jamie's trial and conviction. So we have to look at everything to be able to figure out or, you know, at least take a look at what was going on with him during that time. We were just talking about the bruises on his arms, but when we looked at the physical evidence collected from the scene of the crime that best indicates a struggle, it's the knocked over stool and the bruise on Bill's forehead. Is it possible that that bruise on Bill's forehead was caused from him crashing down onto that stool or bumping his head after he was shot? I thought a lot about this. I thought it was um, really um, poignant that you guys pointed out during the episode that the space behind the counter was so tight that if somebody went back there to get the cash drawer, they probably touched Bill. So I started thinking about the stool, you know, that space in the same reference that the space is so tight. And I was thinking, yeah, that's true. You know, he could have came down and hit his head on the stool and then turned away into a recovery position facing the other wall because he was found right next to the stool. And I was also thinking that if the stool was knocked down during an altercation first, he probably would have been found touching the stool more. But if it was also knocked over after he was already laying down, maybe it would have been on top of him. So I kind of think it was pulled down by Bill. What do you guys think? Do we have any more information on that bruise than the other bruises? I mean, do we know if that was a fresh bruise or not? I only think it was fresh because he said it was a hematoma, which means uh, wouldn't something automatically swell? And then that may have gone down by then. But again, we don't know. I mean, that's all they said is what we reported. And we put the the documents up online and anybody that's an 
expert or knows anything about analyzing or interpreting autopsy reports is welcome to let us know. Do we know, and you know, maybe y'all saw this in the pictures, you said he, he may have hit the stool. I, I wonder what the material of the seat was. It was metal, it. wasn't it? When you look at it, it was like, it wasn't a wooden stool. Okay. So, but it was like, it was a soft edge. You know, I was thinking also too, if he bumped his head on the counter on the way down, it probably would have left a mark, like a laceration, but it didn't. It just left, you know, a bump. So he could have bumped his head on any part of that stool. It also had a, a foot stand on it. So, I mean, I always thought that the way he was found in the fetal position like that, like with his face turning towards the other wall was just... um you know, he curled up because he was in pain. That's the natural recovery position for anything like that. So um, I never really thought that him facing a certain way or the position he was found in had much to do with how he was standing when he fell. But I do think that could explain why the stool is knocked down and then he's turned away from the stool. That's just my opinion. But But then again, if he would have hit... Okay, so if the seat was metal and even had a soft side, like, are you, if you're talking about... I think he would have hit his head and gotten a bump. Like, you know, I think that would account for why he wouldn't have lacerations or, you know, more extensive injuries. He could have just bumped his head on the stool. But if he went full body down, he... Well, we don't know if he went full body down because he didn't go full body down. He was shot twice, remember? And because of the way he was shot twice, he wasn't on the floor the second time. So it's like he kind of slumped and then got shot again. I mean, he could have gone down slowly. I don't know. But but we don't know if he was shot the second time after. Exactly. I mean, my my only point is that I don't think the stool was thrown around during a scuffle. You know, I just think it got knocked over because of the way it was positioned and he was found so close to it, but not touching it, you know? Of course, they never printed. They never checked that stool for prints. It wasn't properly analyzed, so we don't know if anybody moved it. You know, there's a lot of mystery there. You're, you're right, Bruce, about the uh, the stool and the positioning and all. You, you remember the police officer's reports first got there, had him in one position. The crime scene photos had his position moved, and it did come out... The police didn't admit to moving anything until come to trial 10 years later. I mean, this stool, nobody owned up to moving it. We don't have any exact diagrams with dimensions. I don't know. They didn't take them. The stool is kind of would have fallen over. If We don't know where it was when it started out. The stool kind of falls into like these little cubbies that are under it's partially under the counter where it ended up. Now, we don't know if a police officer pushed it out of the way when he's, when he's grabbing Bill's body, if, if, if Williams moved it out of the way and then flipped Bill around. We don't know any of that. We don't know the exact position, the, the exact part on the floor where Bill was found when, they, when Pilo and Williams walked in before Williams Williams moved him. Remember, the the alarm button is up underneath the counter there. So I don't know if if Bill was reaching for the alarm and it fell over. He's been shot and and reaching for the alarm. That kind of all goes to the timing on that tape and stuff of the 
cash door being opened up and then the alarm going off a minute later. There are so many questions with the way the crime scene was investigated that we just don't know. And it's all us, a lot of guessing on our part. Right. And now that you mentioned that the stool was shoved in the cubby, I just pulled up the picture and it is like it didn't it's not a fallen stool. Like somebody picked it up and shoved the entire seat into the shelf under the register. And the only thing that's sticking out by where Bill's head would have been are the feet and the the footstool part of it. So somebody shoved it in there. So that kind of changes everything. I mean, it could have been shoved in there by the perpetrator, could have been shoved in there by Williams when he was trying to get to Bill. I, I remember the picture. I don't have it in front of me, but I I always thought it could have been knocked over and just fall perfectly into that little opening there. And just, I mean, I think it would reach. It would tip over and go in there. But uh, it's I don't know because it has a back on it. I'm looking at it. It has a backrest on it. So it's like, I don't know if it could have fallen in there. It wasn't just a stool. Right. So like I said, there's so much that we don't know. I mean, uh, I've seen crime scene pictures where where positions are, are, are triangulated so that you could always go and reconstruct exactly where things were found and, and all. And the follow-up, uh, follow I understand William is moving the body to do first aid or do life-saving measures. I understand him doing that. That's nothing wrong with that. But the follow-up, nobody ever questions, nobody ever questions it going down through until 10 years later when some of the the re-interviews come out and they say, well, the, the body wasn't like that. It's, it's not how it was in the picture. The initial crime scene should have at least reviewed, not to put an exact measurement of where Bill's head was and where Bill's foot was and such like that. They have nothing. They didn't do any follow-up on on any of that. When it comes to trying to figure out if there was a struggle, I think that the no sales on the cash register show a lot more to that than the stool. I think the stool is a, a mystery. We We can speculate on it, but I don't really think we can come up with any definitive conclusions on that stool. Exactly. Sam, we went over the timeline of the crime scene in this episode really distinctly. There have been some other alternative theories over the years that Gutierrez was never actually there to see the perpetrator. Can we be clear one more time what the stance of Jamie's defense team is for listeners on the Gutierrez matter? We believe that Gutierrez was indeed there right before the crime because that was his first police report. And that was his story the whole time, uh, all of those years. His story was that he was pumping gas. He looked in while he was pumping gas and saw the attendant arguing with someone. Now, he lived in the neighborhood. He was a frequent customer and had been in there. And he said that Bill was always friendly. But this time, when he went in to pay for gas, Bill did not speak to him like he normally did. He wasn't friendly. He wasn't chatty. He wasn't making small talk. And that when he handed him the money, he had gotten $3 worth of gas. 
you know, it was like $2 bills and four quarters or something like that. And Bill's hands were shaking so badly that he dropped the change and that the guy that was standing next to him kind of turned away, but had also lit a cigarette during that time. And then he left and went home. And then he said that he heard about the shooting. He said when he walked in the house, he looked at the clock and it was 8-12. And a little bit later on, he saw, you know, an alert on TV saying that there was a shooting. And then he went back to the scene to tell police that he saw Bill in there arguing with someone. Now, as we know from our previous episodes, a lot changes over the years, right? In 1999, when they interviewed Gutierrez, all of a sudden his story changed and it, it wasn't abruptly. He was kind of led. Barkas is like, well, there was a gas purchase for $3 at 7 p.m. Could you have been there at 7? Is that possible? Well, it's possible. You know, I was there at 7, which turned into I went there. And instead of going straight home, he says in 1999 that he went, you know, it's just a crazy story. He went to his friend's house who got a pool table and, you know, he went to shoot pool and he was there shooting pool for like an hour and a half or whatever that convenient increment is between seven and eight. So they made it sound like he saw somebody in there arguing with him at seven and then left. And then on his way home, he saw the police tape and stopped, which is completely opposite of the story he said in the beginning. And you have to, you have to look at what people say at the time of the crime. He went back there, they took a police report, and that's what he said the night of the crime. He said, I was here and then I went home and I saw, I looked at the clock and it was 8 12. I mean, that doesn't even, all of a sudden there's a whole hour span between that. So they could account for that gas purchase for $3 at seven. We believe if there was a gas purchase for $3 at six o'clock, he would have been led to say, well, I was there at six and then I spent two hours, you know, at my friend's house across town. So that's the issue with Gutierrez. We strongly believe that that person that was in there was the one that committed the robbery. Why would Bill ring up a $3 gas purchase? You know, if a crime was being committed at that time, why would he even bother to ring it up? The other thing, Tam, with the whole $3 thing is, didn't at 806, we said that it was like a $4 and change ring up? Well, we know that there was a, there was a gas differential. Oh, of $4 and something cents. Okay. Right. So what happened years later was Gutierrez was in jail and he told somebody he got free gas that night. It was like bragging about it. And I was thinking maybe he slipped the bill $3 and thought he was, and then was like all happy and proud of himself that he took advantage of a situation where the clerk wasn't paying attention. He got $1.46 for free. I mean, that kind of lines up. 
you know, but also it lines up that if that purchase a, a dollar and whatever cents, you know, is probably a normal differential. differential. In oh, gas. okay, yeah. So the three dollar purchase could easily fit into that scenario. I mean, there was a four dollar and something cent differential between the gas and the register. But I've always thought that was odd when he was in jail later, Gutierrez, that is, when he was in jail later, said that I was there and got free gas and I was there the night of the murder and just, you know, kind of talking about it. And then Charlie Crow went in there and took a police report and he like backed down from all of that. It's just another thing that's weird about this case. So what'd you think about that, Ray? Well, I I agree with Tim about the the fresh statement. I mean, they took Gutierrez into headquarters and took a formal statement from him. I, I don't know. There's no time. I don't remember time being on it. Like if it was like in the middle of the night or but it was April 1st, so it was the next day at the very least. They took a formal statement over this, his actions that evening. That, that's normally the most, you would go to being the most accurate. Now, you know, some of that, I got gas, uh, you know, bragging in, the, in jail and being there the night of the crime. Who knows what that is? But in 99, whenever Gutierrez was, and, and that's something else. We we don't know where Gutierrez is. We can't find him. He was in Florida when he was interviewed in 99. He seems to be, and Leslie, you may just from listening to the, to the tape and just the way he testified, he, he seems to be, he could be easily manipulated by the police. Initially, Gutierrez was, was a star. I mean, they, they put his composite up on all the news and stuff, the picture that he made. That's the way they were investigating. Come 99, they worked very hard to get Gutierrez to say, yeah, I was there, but I was there an hour before everything happened. So everything I said that night doesn't matter because it just didn't happen that way. So it's the way the police operated, in my opinion. But they believed him, right? Because... Okay, so here's how the composites went. Gutierrez made a composite, which they used for the next two years. Yes. And then then that same night, Danny Martinez made a composite, which they did not use, which tells you that the police did not believe Martinez's story because they would have released it. And then they released Martinez's composite and he didn't have the chin scar. He didn't have the earring. He didn't have that thin face. He didn't have any of that. It was a much more vague composite and they just put it out there. And Lieutenant Ogg, the police spokesman, You know, there's an article saying that really muddies the water, basically, when you're releasing two composites. Og was against that. He even did, you know, a whole 
press conference on why they shouldn't release a second composite. And at first they said, well, there might be another person that was there and we're releasing these two. And almost immediately they stopped releasing the one, the Gutierrez composite and solely used Martinez composite, right? you know, for the rest of the years. And I've got that whole thing documented just from the press and the composites that they were releasing. And it was just like, they just completely changed their theory on it. Coincidentally, that's when we found that memo, Ray, right. through FOIA in, in 1993, I think it was December 1993, that Detective Katz was trying to get an indictment against Jamie. And then all of a the sudden they're releasing this new composite. Exactly. I mean, that's... Uh... That's what's just troubling about the whole investigation. I mean, you, you know the timeline and the way they worked. And they, the state police, they had investigators on the task force and doing initial interviews. The state police dropped out of the investigation. And then there's when cats started picking up on stuff and it died. And then they picked up and again in 1998. So. Well, the other thing is they never identified the person in Gutierrez's composite and that's what they do now in these in murder cases and crimes is the one that's really big in the news right now is the Delphi murders and they had multiple mug shots of the guy who is like oh down the bridge girls who killed the two um, preteens on the bridge and they were able to identify who was coming in and out of that park to eliminate people as if, you know, oh, this was just a regular passerby or this was a potential suspect. So if he really was there at seven o'clock and that man was there and they have all these, it was a holiday and they have the register tapes and everything to match, it should have been pretty easy to find out who that was or get somebody to come forward and say it was them, but they never did. Exactly. I mean, there's a lot of other entries on that, on that tape, uh, different sales and stuff that as far as I know, they never tried tracking down anybody else being in that store at that night. Uh, other than one one guy at the very end of the guy that testified in court that he was probably one of those last sales on the tape. So to circle back to the no sale issue, I think we put this out very clearly, but a, another argument for the struggle is that, I mean, you don't know who's doing it, right? So so there's a no sale and then it's shut because it has to be shut before you can register another no sale. So that's the issue, that the no sale button was pushed three times. The first time there was an increment, I think, of six minutes, and I'm just doing this from memory. You know, no sale, and then six minutes later, another no sale. Now, you don't know if the door was shut immediately or later or what. That's a big deal. I, I remember back in 91 running a register, and you were accountable for no sales. When they run what they call a Z tape, that's, you know, the end of it, and it shows the no sales. You have to say why you opened that register. And for that to happen three times in a row is weird. 
for someone who's trying to keep their job because they're going to have to explain that. The fact that there was a no sale and then six minutes and then a no sale and then a little bit more time and then a final no sale tells me that if somebody was sitting and one minute, one minute after the last no sale, the alarm was pushed. So that tells me there's some type of struggle going on there. Now, if that's the case, then would Bill Little be arguing with and pushing a drawer with some stranger who was, you know, had a gun in his face or Could it have been somebody that he knew and he was like, no, man, that's the the no sale issue that you were talking about. That's significant in the argument for a struggle. What do y'all think? For me, that's the most significant evidence we have that there was a struggle because it doesn't make any sense. Um, I worked at a cash register, same thing in the 90s. And, you know, I know about the Z tapes and all that. And if you wanted to keep your job, you didn't hit that button. It was just the only thing they had to keep their employees in line. So th- there's no way he was just sitting there playing with that register. And just the time frame looks like it shows that there was an argument going on. And that last time that no sale was hit is when the drawer was taken out. What is your take on it, Ray? The only thing that troubles me about the whole I agree. It may be somebody that he, he knew was in there and open it, close it. Don't take the money, take the money, take, give me more money, that kind of a deal. But I'm, I'm probably most troubled by the, the last no sale going off. And then a minute later, the alarm kicking in. It all goes to, to timing. Again, I keep going back to the, the police investigation that was kind of shoddy the whole way through. There's no comparison of, of time from the, the alarm company to the time on the cash register to uh, the time of the, the paramedics dispatch. There's, there's, no, there's no synchronization of all those clocks, so to speak. From where where they say Bill landed or where Bill was first found, I don't think Bill could reach the if he was on the floor, he could not reach that alarm button. So did he open the thing, hit the alarm, and then get shot? It's it's all just trying to it's all guesswork at this at this stage of the game. And did he hit the was he the one that hit the alarm button? Yeah, right. um, you know, that's another question because they never fingerprinted the alarm button. So yeah, we don't even know. I mean, there, there there are so many questions and so many scenarios. One theory that was brought up that I found very interesting. And again, Ray, you might have experience in this was that somebody came in and they were casing the place. So did they come in and be like, hey, I need change for this? And that's why the no sale was hit. Very Um, very well could be. And and then his buddy or her buddy came in and said, I need, you know, this cause for opening the drawer. Again, it's speculation, but the point is, Test the clothes, test the DNA. We have this technology now that could help us unravel this puzzle. 
and figure it out because we don't know. And it was an improper investigation that he was convicted on an crappy investigation and those questions need to be answered. Ray, you did some extensive research on the gas station burglaries that Bill and his friends were accused of being involved in. Can you break down what was going on with those burglaries? And do you think that Bill was involved? The, the burglary that you're, that you're referring to is there is a, and I'm not, and I'm not from Illinois, so I'm not sure where Bloomington and Leroy, Illinois are. They're, they're obviously in the same county, but I don't know the distance, but, uh, from one of the reports out of Little's investigation, we found a mention that uh, his name came up for these burglary in Leroy. Now, it looks like Bill worked at a Sunoco station there with another kid, and he was suspect in a burglary of that gas station. He was questioned back I want to say August or September of 1990 is when this burglary occurred. Now, we're talking different agencies, different departments. Bottom line, when I try, when we try getting reports from about the Sunoco station and how he was questioned, it said he was questioned in it. All those reports have been thrown away. They're beyond the uh, retention period for that type of crime for Leroy police. Leroy police did not, they don't have to keep it. They didn't keep, keep the reports. And when we tried getting them 20 years later, they definitely don't have them. That's the, that's a roadblock we hit kind of regularly with this, uh, this whole process. I mean, obviously he was questioned. They say it's in a county sheriff's report that Bill was questioned about a a burglary of the gas station. I I think it was like seven hundred dollars was taken in that one, though. But there's there's where the dead where dead ends. It goes no further. There's no we can't find other reports. The I I think Leroy seemed like a little police department that some of the reports that we do have from there come out under the signature of the police chief that he's. Police chief is out doing the investigation on uh, on burglaries and stuff like that. That's the Molly's Tavern. He's the initial report on that one. But it's at that end. I mean, it's obvious his name is there. The police interviewed him. He was involved some way, but we don't know to what extent. So, Ray, you you're saying that he was questioned in it, but in the report, the ISP investigative report says that he was a suspect. Well, he, was, he was a suspect in question. I mean, he's that strong okay. suspect that he was brought in and interviewed. Uh, what's your involvement here? He was he was a suspect along with, um, I forget the other kid's name. They were both employees there and they were both suspect of doing it. But there's no, he either went nowhere or if he was arrested for it, he was a juvenile at the time, so he wouldn't get juvenile records. Okay, so then to look at in that same report, it also states that the person that was with him was also a suspect in the Molly's Tavern robberies. Right. Where, and to me, when I look at this, there's a, a common thread. Him and his 
friend or working at Sunoco and $700 cash comes up missing. And then at Molly's Tavern, the main person or one of one of the people that was actually indicted for robbery, there were multiple robberies at Molly's Tavern, was her father was a janitor and part, part-time bartender. She had admitted that she took the keys and that they stole all the stuff. There were like several, like seven people, you know, involved in that. And then it was her and another girl who knew Bill Little. That just seems like a common thread as far as you have an inside person doing a crime. Right. Which is just kind of coincidental, maybe. Right. Just just to kind of put it in order, the first report about Molly's coming up come from Bill's Bill's mother and sister and father. That's where Bill, we talked about Molly's and the pool hall where Bill played around in Leroy. That comes from Bill's mother. And as we follow through, then we find the report from McLean County Sheriff's investigators that did the Molly's investigation. And that's where it jumps over to, okay, Bill's name comes up with this Sunoco burglary. And that's how it just, that's how we build through to, to get the connection with Bill was actually a suspect in, in the Sunoco. His name come up by other people that were involved in Molly's and Molly's comes into it because that's where Bill hung out and got kicked out of because he was there gambling. And that's all the connection all kind of going back to there's, there was a possible struggle of somebody coming to, to pick up a debt that Bill may have owed. We don't know that. Somebody coming uh, because Bill's going to squeal on somebody else that he's involved with. We don't know any of that stuff. And there's the Bloomington Police Department never follows through interviewing all these other individuals, you know, getting a a solid statement from them of, yes, this is what, this is the direction it was going. They just don't follow up on it. Exactly. Leslie, I I think you've always thought this was a robbery gone wrong. I know you did some research to compare Bill's case to other violent robberies. What did you find? Did it change your mind? I did find this study that, you know, to me, it seems like almost biblical, the way that it, described the similarities between robberies gone wrong that end in severe injury. So it was done by the DOJ in January of 1999, and it used a bunch of data from the early 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s, and combined it all together. And it was uh, a multi-state study, and it's called Multi-State Study of Convenience Store Robberies. And the first sentence that, you know, I just need to quote says, homicide ranks as one of the leading types of occupational injury in the United States, accounting for over 11,000 worker deaths in the most recent year. In the period of 1980 to 1989, the rate of employee homicide was reported as eight per 100,000, with 75% of these homicides resulting from gunshots. After taxi cabs, convenience stores have the highest prevalence of workplace homicide and also have very high rates of robberies. 
So they did um, a bunch of literature reviews to study how these states were analyzing all of their crime and coming up with ways to prevent it and combat it. And they found that these stores are being robbed mostly because they're easily accessible in cities and have cash on hand. So for quick funds for people, which, you know, we obviously know that, but they came up with very specific stuff. The first study found that you could reduce crime and reduce robbery of these places by placing signs that you have a low amount of cash on store in the hand. You can move a drop box to make it more conspicuous. Like we saw in the Clark station, it was in the floor. You can improve lighting in the parking lot, which we heard from police officers and everybody in the state trying to come up with all these different ways Jamie could have been there was they said it was bad lighting. So they're saying, you know, you need better lighting. You have to keep the store clean, enhance employee alertness and greet every person who comes in. A second study found that if you increase your reliance on cameras, as opposed to these other techniques, that's not effective either. So cameras don't didn't help to deter. Another study found that the number of clerks had the largest deterrent effect. So if you had more than two clerks on duty, there was a very low robbery rate. And if your um, other businesses nearby were closing at midnight too or were 24 hours, open for 24 hours, that also reduced the robbery rate, which I, the Clark station didn't have any others nearby. And another study found that stores that provided a gas service in the parking lot tended to have more business and fewer unguarded chances for a robber to go into the store. But in areas that didn't have that, you know, there would be more increased robberies because people couldn't identify the person. So, you know, the Clark Station did have gas, but maybe because it was a holiday, there were less people there and made it more opportune. I don't know. So there was also really important too, is conflicting info on cash register placement was gathered from all these studies. One found that if you had a register in plain view from the outside of the store, right in the center, it was less likely to be robbed. Another found that if you had the register concealed, it was less likely to be robbed. Or if you had it, you know, moved to the left of the door, it was less likely to be robbed. So I think that all goes against what we found in the Clark station because it was moved to right to the side of the entrance. It was visible from the outside of the store, maybe not the drawer itself, but you know, we heard officer Pilo say he could see Bill checking people in and out. It does seem like that should have been a deterrent. So the study was also really important for us to analyze because they interviewed the victims and the offenders to get even more information on what happens during these crimes. And they found that um, a majority of the victims said they worked in the convenience store for two years or less, and only 25% had worked there for more than four years. 28% of the people who were robbed had injuries, and 68% of the injuries had trauma to the head, just like with Bill. In contrast to Bill, most of them occurred in the late at night or early in the morning. Employees reported that the self-protection they had on hand was primarily an alarm system, like with Bill, and only 12% of them had a gun. And half of them indicated they used the alarm or a weapon during the robbery. Of those people who were actually injured, 65% of them said that there was nothing they could have done to prevent it. Nobody could have done anything to prevent it. They had no training on how to interact 
with the robber. They only had training on how to operate the alarm. And I think that's kind of what we saw with Bill and why, you know, we are all thinking there might have been a confrontation. And, you know, he did tell his family he was going to confront people. So obviously he had no training, but he did know how to activate the alarm. So when the offenders were interviewed after they were apprehended, 87% of the time they used weapon, that was a gun. But most of the time, at 71% of the time, they only displayed it and they never injured the clerk with it. Interestingly, 83% of these people were incarcerated for drugs or drinking problems, but only half of them said they were high the night of the robbery. 64% said they planned it in six hours or less, and 73% didn't even consider another store. So there was very poor planning. They did admit that things that would have influenced their decision to pick a store were the proximity to the highways, the number of clerks in the store, the type of security system, or if they had any guards, where the police station was located, if police were driving by, the number of customers in the store, and the number of people outside the store. For the crime details, this was kind of jarring to read this. It almost sounded like it was about somebody who robbed the Clark station. So I don't wanted to read this part to you guys word for word. It said, um, 77% who answered these questions, you know, these are the offenders, reported that they did not initially use force. When force was used, it was used after the response of the clerk or customers prompting the offender to determine that, in their judgment, force was required at that point. The majority of offenders reported that the monetary return from the robbery was $200 or less. After leaving the store, the offenders report that they either went home or to work, went to a nearby public place, most usually a bar, or they stayed in the general area of the store. Only 23% stayed. Most of them went to work. The majority of the offenders reported that they went to and left the store by car. Over half of the offenders indicated they were arrested the same day or the next day. For those who were arrested, the primary basis for the apprehension was that they were identified by someone who was at the scene who knew them or was able to place them in a job or location. 24% were arrested as a result of police investigation of the incident, usually very shortly after the incident itself. When asked why they committed the crime, the offenders indicated that the reason was for money and money for drugs in 72% of the cases, as might be expected. When offenders were asked what they thought their probability of apprehension was before they committed the crime, on a scale from 0 to 10, 56% indicated the chance was 0, and 78% indicated the chance was 4 or less. To me, that just sounded like, you know, that's an entire wrap-up of who this perpetrator is right then and there. That was all so similar to everything we we saw on the Clark Station. So when those offenders were asked what could have prevented them from doing these crimes, 72% of them said the following, that um, if there were guards there, they wouldn't have done it. If the police station was close, they wouldn't have done it. If they saw police in the area, they wouldn't have done it. And if there were more than one person inside or outside the store, they wouldn't have done it. The study wrapped up this and concluded that 57% of the time, clerks have no training on what to do after the crime occurs. and probably because the turnover rate is so high. It, it, you know, it's very hard to train all these people who are working there. And the DOJ concluded that there needs to be a really heavy emphasis 
on um, police security and other deterrents, you know, and not only relying on environmental stuff like having cameras or where you place the cash register um, or, the, you know, the drop box that there needs to be improved policing in the area. So what do you guys think of that? I mean, that didn't change my mind, if anything, that reinforced what I thought that this was some kind of robbery gone bad. A couple of things that struck me, first of all, the headwinds. Why were there such a high number of headwinds? Are people just walking in and just whacking people on well, the head? They, got a, they said they all brought a gun. Most of them brought a gun. And then only a quarter of the time somebody was injured, but most of the time it was a head wound. So I guess they're hitting them in the head with the gun or they yeah, don't want to use the gun. So they're fist fighting. I, there's a confrontation because of the way the clerk is responding. And then um, we know that there was plywood on the windows. Brenda Little went on a mission about putting coverings and flyers. And I mean, back in the day, there used to be tons of notes and flyers and posters and everything on stores. And she really stepped up and was like, we don't need to be putting covering over these windows because people need to be visible. And the last thing that you said, you know, it was Easter, Easter Sunday. And I know Gloria Luna said it was really slow and uh, that it was a neighborhood gas station. So there wasn't traffic on the highways coming off the interstate. It was a neighborhood gas station and most people were sleepy on Easter Sunday. Those are the three things that really stood out. Wow. Also, the $200 or less and 73% of the time it was because they wanted drug money. Like I just, um, and then the thing they were talking about too with the, the safe and the drop, the, the drop safe. I mean, they did have one there right in the floor. And right. I mean, it was just all paralleled it so well. I felt like we had a profile of the offender right then and there. And they had this information. This was published in 1999. So why was this not used? I mean, why Frank Pitzel could have read what I just read during Jamie's trial. So it was like the perfect storm. What'd you think about it, right? Because I know you were a police officer back when they were doing all this research. Well, I'm thinking when you, when you just said that it's stuff that uh, Frank Pistol should have uh, hit on. I mean, that just he he missed so much. It's just it's just crazy. I'd be curious to compare some of the other robberies that were going on at the same time as in 1991. You know, there was the task force out there. There's several taverns, there's uh, other gas stations, there's the the bus station, all these other jobs that were going on to just kind of compare. And, and I don't think, we, we don't have a whole lot of notes that we found. We've got detectives notes somewhere in some of the FOIAs. Every FOIA comes a little bit different. We have other reports, but uh, I don't ever remember seeing anything come down that says uh, what happened in... In Clark Station number one was the same thing that happened in Clark Station number two. It was the same thing that uh, happened with the bus station. They never put really put down any big compare notes within that task force that they had. So 
Yeah, it's it was screwed up, I think, from, from the start. Now, Bruce, you had asked me if I had changed my mind. I didn't change my mind that I thought it was a robbery, but I changed my mind about the scuffle. I mean, because I always thought that, you know, it was just a robbery gone bad and something happened and he got shot from across the counter. But the data here doesn't, the facts don't lie. I mean, they interviewed the victims, they interviewed the the offenders, and they compared this across multiple states. And everybody agreed that the only time it went bad was when the clerk responded poorly and the clerks all admitted that they had no training. So I don't know if it was a physical scuffle or whatever, but I do think that uh, something happened, like some kind of conflict. He didn't just press a silent alarm and cooperate. That's what I changed my mind about. I mean, we have enough reports and enough friends saying that uh, Bill would not cooperate with anybody trying to rob him. Yeah, he had made that clear to family, correct? To, to family, friends. He wanted he wanted friends uh, to to be with him that night, kind of like he thought something was happen going to happen. I don't know. That's significant as well that he wanted somebody else to be in the station with him, as if he knew that somebody was coming to get him. That's why I I don't think it was a uh, it was a random robbery like you know somebody from out of town driving by and here's a gas station that's it's dark let's go ahead and rob it I think uh, I think when it's finally done and over with and somebody would come forward I believe it would be somebody that Bill knew some connection good good or bad friend or foe but it's somebody that Bill knew. So we don't we don't know if it was somebody coming to collect the debt or if it was an argument, but with all of your re- extensive police career work and all the work you've done in your career, you think that it was a, an acquaintance of Bill's? I think in the end it will it will come be maybe not a maybe not necessarily a friend, but uh, somebody he knew, somebody he had some kind of a connection with, and and that's what it will end up being whether it's somebody that that didn't like him, somebody that he owed money to, somebody that partied with him, and somebody that ticked off a girlfriend with him, somebody that uh, maybe did drugs, somebody, like I said, somebody he owed money to. It all comes back to the frustration of the poor police work as well, because at the time, if all the proper investigative work was done, they probably could have made a connection. At the time, yes. I mean, we're we come across with all this information about gambling and other other incidents that he was involved with, but there's no there's no follow up reports on any of this stuff, and it's 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 a shame how they cleared leads and stuff that they did that they did receive. This information was out there to them in 1991, and the sad part is even in 1999. Cats and Barks did not pursue these. They looked at what they wanted to look at, kind of to manipulate the case to Jamie. Right. You know, now with all the testing that we still want done, they're not going to find Jamie at the scene. But unfortunately, they might find a mystery person now that they can never make a connection to just because so many years have gone by. I mean, that's true. I mean, they have databases that they can compare it to. And a lot of the people that were... Whose, whose names have been brought up in reports and stuff. I mean, they're, they're in the system. So they may, their, their uh, DNA or prints or something may be in the system that will connect. That's what we're hopeful for. Right? That's certainly what we'd like to see. 
Right, because that information has never been tested. The fingerprints have not been in APHIS. They were ran in 1991. So it could be somebody fucking sitting right next to Jamie right now who did that crime and has a history of violent robberies, armed robberies. Right. We don't know. I just wanted to add that I think Crow never thought Jamie did it as much as Crow frustrates me. He was the investigator until he retired in 1998. And he was not, I mean, he, he did look into a lot of this and he looked into other people and alternatives. And the point is, you know, in 1998, when Katz and Barkas took over the case after Crow retired, their sole focus was on Jamie. And they told people, we're going back and investigating everybody. And they didn't. They focused on Jamie and interviewed anybody who had a link to Jamie. And and that goes back to 1993 when Katz was trying to get Jamie indicted from that memo. And Katz was lurking around in 91 at the crime scene. But we don't have any police reports on him. We just have mentions of Katz talking to somebody or doing something. So I don't know what that deal was, but when they took over this case, miraculously, you know, that seasoned investigator, Crow, it didn't solve it in 10 years, you know, until he retired. And then all of a sudden, Katz and Barkas solve it in a year. Jamie was the fall guy. Right. I picked up on what you were saying about somebody that Bill knew. And there are some kind of similarities with the other robbery he was a suspect in. Do you think that it was somebody that he was intertangled with in a bad way who thought he, you know, he might have owed him money or he knew Bill worked there and would have been an easy target and just showed up and was like, let me rob the gas station and Bill didn't allow it? I don't know about any intent. I would only say that I think they came there to confront Bill about something. I mean, the robbery and taking the cash register drawer may have been an afterthought. I think it could have been an argument. Bill's arguing back and forth. Uh, That's a scenario I kind of see in my mind. And I think it's, like I said, I go back to saying, I think it's somebody that knew Bill, knew where he would be on Easter evening. I said, there's reports that says repeatedly that, uh, Bill wanted somebody to stay with him. Why? You know, he didn't want to stay there on Friday night or any other night. But this time it was. It was. So we don't know if he's threatened before. Uh, says I'm coming to get you. I want my. I want my money. I want. You owe me something. I'm coming. We we don't know any of that. But but I I think taking the money could very well be just an afterthought. Opportunistic. Yeah, it was it was there, or or make it even even to make it look like a. Uh, oh, a yeah. never even thought of that. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to 
come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential 